page 1,218. Uh, 1,218. And it's starting at uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. Uh, going through to chapter 3, verse 8. So it's quite long. So uh, sit tight. Okay. So, uh, dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which rage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that... Though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see you see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor, a supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it's God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom uh, to cover up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is um, commendable um, if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how it is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you are called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, um, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep gone astray. But now you have ret- returned to the shepherd and overseer of, our, of your souls. Wives, in the sub- same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they, when they see purity and reverence in your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who, who Abraham, um, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are, you are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way, way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate of your, of, of your, um, of you, um, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and, the, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, and humble. This is the word of the Lord.
May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Maker and Redeemer. Amen. Well, this is a passage which in some ways is shocking and challenges us in all sorts of ways. But let's bear with it because it has a lot to teach us about how we should live in good relationships and how we should grow through those relationships and how those relationships can actually change the world. It's a passage which zooms in. It starts very, very broad and talks about relationships that we should have with the whole of society, everyone else in the world. It then starts to zoom down to talk about how we might deal with politics and the state. It then narrows further and has a lot to say about our relationships in our places of work. And then about our households. And finally, what that might mean for me as an individual And actually, how I might as an individual come to make an enormous difference to those around me through the growth in relationships which I will have if I follow the teaching that we receive in this passage. I want to take as an overall kind of key to the sermon this evening, uh, verse 12. If you've still got the Bibles open, it could be quite helpful because I am going to go through quite closely with the passage in sections. I can't now remember the page number, but the 1218. Thank you, Charge. 1218. 1 Peter 2. 11 to 3, 8. But if we start with verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now this is about life amongst the pagans. This is about a non-Christian society. And that's kind of us. It is sadly the case that 98% of the people out there with whom we live in our society in London do not go to church. Do not follow the life of Jesus Christ. There are patches where it's more. There are patches where it's even less. But this is by and large a society in which to be a Christian is to be abnormal, is to be different from others around us. And that's as it was in Roman society, the society for which this passage was written. It is directly relevant to our situation. And the passage is saying that uh, we should live such good lives among the pagans that uh, we should then glorify God. And so our way of life, our way of life within that pagan society is to be one which glorifies God. And through lives, it's saying, through which we can thrive, through which we can grow, will be those which are seen and through being seen, will affect the lives of others. And we shall find that, again and again in this passage, it suggests to us that even when our relationships are wonky, even when our relationships are pretty bad and broken up, even when our relationships are not as we might like them to be, nevertheless, they can be effective in proclaiming God's ways to the world. And it's not that we should have to fix our relationships so that we can grow through them, so that we can be effective. But rather, if we focus on God, even within relationships that may be difficult, then we can grow and be enabled to serve and to be those whose good deeds will be seen and which will make a difference. So first of all, relationships with the whole society. Uh, Verse 11 of uh, chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. Foreigners and exiles. We are ultimately not to be seen as part of 
this society, part of this world. And these sinful desires mentioned in this verse, which wage war against your soul, these are the desires to do well in this society in whatever way we might connote that. There are all kinds of ways that we look about how we might do well in society. We might try to be rich and wealthy. We might try to be famous. We might try to be beautiful. We might try to be clever. There are all kinds of things. We might try to be popular within our own friendship group. All sorts of ways in which we may seek something which serves me first and not necessarily serving that relationship with God which will enable us then to change the world. We are exiles, foreigners, not to see the world's measures of success as our measures of success, but to look at other measures of success. And that foundational attitude is something we ought to take into all of our other relationships. But broadly speaking, we don't cave in to what society would expect of us. And now this is going to be illustrated in a series of different kinds of relationships within wider society. And first of all, politics and the state. Verse 13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, which is quite challenging language. Submit yourselves. Well, it says a a word that really we don't like very much. We don't do submission very much. We don't think that's very healthy or helpful. But notice that in principle, the Christian is not being servile because we are, verse 16, to live as free people, but not using our freedom as a cover-up for evil, but rather to live as God's slaves. Now, this cover-up for evil is a cover-up for self-aggrandizement. The thing about political engagement is that so often, even though it might begin in a really good place about me wanting to serve, it becomes about me wanting to have power. And it becomes about me wanting to have influence. It becomes, there are all kinds of ways in which we find ourselves starting, even continuing with good intentions, but finding it's turned back into something which is fundamentally selfish. And this is really challenging, because we want society to be better. And this was not written out of a society that was some kind of wonderful, beautiful society where there weren't any social ills or problems. First century Anatolia, where this was probably written, modern-day Turkey, was not a very happy place, full of social unrest in rapidly industrializing cities, not unlike our own. But the author is clear that the aim in view is not the healing of human society, but the breaking in of God's kingdom. And this is a challenge to us. Because we would like to see social ills cured, but what we're being taught here is that we should rather seek God first, and out of that, out of that result of that will be that people, more people, will see our good works and become followers of Christ. And out of that will come the social change which is sought. And so it's something we should grapple with and be challenged by rather than simply assuming that social activism is always the response that we should make to social needs. And that is a challenge, because this is not to say that social activism is bad or to be avoided or not to be done, but it's not to be the main focus of what we're about. We've all seen how Christian charities, charities and uh, organisations which have begun in the depths of a piece of Christian work have then moved right away from that, Did you know that Tottenham Hotspur football team used to be a men's Bible study group? I rest my case. 
So show proper respect to everyone, verse 17, loving the family of believers, fearing God and honoring the emperor. That is the means the passage teaches us by which we can really change the world, its politics. We can do that because people will look on us well and will then themselves come to follow Christ with the result that the world changes. Let's move on to verses 18 to 25. Uh, This part of the passage is talking about relationships at work. And it begins with, again, something which seems to be extraordinarily shocking. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters. And then it twists the knife, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. My goodness, that's challenging. That is not what we want to hear and read about the nature of slavery. And actually, the thing about these words here is that the Greek here, the word doulos, the underlying word for slave, can also mean servant or worker. And so what this bit is doing, you can read this as being servants and lords. It can be slaves and slave drivers. It can be workers and bosses. You can read it any way you like in English, but what it does is not to take away the, 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 the awful connotations of slavery, but is to apply what it's it's saying to every workplace, your workplace, mine. And what's being said, shockingly, is that Christian workers should not rebel regardless of provocation. And once again, the same thing is happening. We are being enjoined to have a focus first and foremost on God. Now, this is not about social conservatism or the establishment of any particular social or economic program, but it's about placing the whole emphasis of life on glorifying God and not focusing our emphasis of life on whether society is fair or working practices are just. And it goes on. The suffering that might arise in a bad workplace or in a relationship of slavery is shockingly something that can do a spiritual good. Verse 20... How is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. And Christ is given to us as our example of this. And this suddenly is going to give a whole new perspective through the cross. Because verse 23, when they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly to the to our Heavenly Father. Now, it's really important to see here that Scripture is not saying that suffering is in itself good. We should indeed be seeking an end to slavery in all its forms, an end to the mistreatment of workers of all types. But the good treatment of workers is not the main thing. And, of course, Christ's suffering changes the world. I'm not going to preach a sermon on the cross here, but there is a sermon on the cross buried in this passage, not even so deeply buried, because by his wounds... You have been healed, it says here. Because the point is that Christ's suffering on the cross leads to that extraordinary change of all the world, which is our salvation, which is the inbreaking of the church with all that that has meant for the betterment of society and for the changing of attitudes. And he did that not by setting up a program for rights. Indeed, one reading of the problem that, that Judas the Zealot had with our blessed Lord, was that the zealots did precisely have a political program and that actually Christ wasn't up for that. He had a program which was about leading us to his Father 
even at the cost of terrible suffering on the cross, such that we might be receiving salvation. And so in the end, this part of the passage also calls us not to a program of workers' rights, however important that might be, not my rights, not even another person's rights, not even a suffering slave's rights, important that those things are, but calls us to focus on glorifying God, not to be, verse 25, like a sheep that wanders around, going astray to other causes, but returning to the shepherd, and my goodness, here we go again with the slavery language, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It really doesn't pull its punches. It gives us a huge amount to ponder and to have to wrestle with, because that is how we will glorify God, and if we glorify God, then others will see that, they will be evangelized by that, They will become Christians, and that is what fundamentally then will change society. So, we have narrowed down. Narrowed down from society as a whole, and our attitude to how that should be, and seeking God in that and not myself, to politics and the state, and how we shouldn't be working for a particular political program, but that we should be seeking to bring others to Christ by our own good living, and to... Apply that then to the workplace. And each time it's been a little bit uncomfortable. Now it gets really uncomfortable when we hit the beginning of verse 3. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. This is the principle of evangelization by submission. Changing people and therefore healing relationships. And it couldn't be clearer in this bit of the passage. The picture that is given to us here is of one of those mixed marriages of the early church and we know them now in our own society as well where one partner where the man the 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 wife is is devout and given to christ and the man is not and the first thing to say about this passage is that in a context in which women were not to be teachers were not to speak in public were not to be seen as having authority over their husbands By her actions, she will convert him. She will evangelize him. She will teach him. And so the first thing that's going on here is a kind of subversive bit of egalitarianism, of of equality, of placing the woman at the heart of the work of evangelization. She is to have that crucial role of teaching her unbelieving husband. And that's what the bit about jewelry and clothes is all about. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, and all that stuff about not having a posh hairdo or fancy clothes. And the Christian woman is not to fall into the trap, we're being taught here, of using beauty and fashion as a form of power, of caving into the tendency of men to objectivize women. When a relationship is built on that foundation, then it will founder. But the daughter of Sarah is to behave differently. Your inner self, verse 4, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, that is what will lead to this work of conversion. And here is Sarah. Sarah who, because of her obedience to God's call in her life to be a mother in her old age to the aged Abraham, it becomes the foremother of the whole of the chosen people, the foremother of the Messiah, prepared through her obedience to bring salvation to the world in Jesus Christ. You are her daughters, verse 6, if you do what is right. 
Now, this is a million miles from submitting to domestic violence or abuse, which is not what this passage is about. And those who would use it to justify trapping women in those kinds of circumstances have not read it correctly and use it wrongly. That is not what St. Peter is saying in this passage of Scripture. Rather, we are to grow through relationships which give glory to God and effect change, not by a struggle for power, which characterizes so much of our modernist ways of thinking about the relationship between women and men. And then in verse 7, we turn now to the husband in a way that, by its egalitarianism, is shocking to the first century mindset and in some ways to our 21st century mindset as well. In the same way, blokes, you've got to listen to this as well because it just applies just as much to you. Treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious life. And be considerate is the word. Now, this word considerate, the underlying word is knowledge, gnosis. Now, Gnosticism, this was a sort of system of beliefs which grew up in the the first century and sort of fizzled out in the fourth. And early Gnosticism was a bit different from what happened a little bit later. But uh, this early Gnosticism postulated in some of its forms a radical differentiation between men and women and postulated the idea that women are lower, carnal, not quite human, unclean beings. But the gnosis of the Christian we're taught here is that men should treat women with respect as equally as of grace. In the same way, be knowledgeable, considerate, have decent gnosis of your, of your wife. But what is this about the weaker partner? Well, there is something about what is generally speaking the relative physical strength of men and women, but emotionally and spiritually, as we know, women are very often stronger than men, and that's also true in terms of their physical, uh, their physical capabilities as well sometimes. But in the context of a New Testament Christianity which says consistently that that which is weak goes first, that that which is last shall be first, that that which is lower shall be higher, that that which is, St. Paul says, seemingly by the world treated as being of a lower status should be the thing which is most given glory. Uh, A Christianity which is postulating that Christ, who is stripped naked, who is crucified as a common criminal, who is abused, who is left as the lowest of the low, is nevertheless the nothing less than God incarnate, the highest of the high. In that context, this business about the weaker partner pushes us towards the denouement of the passage that the wife is the heir of the gracious gift of life. And the Gnostic view that men are on a higher plane is dismissed, as also is a 21st century view of some kind of difference that enables us to establish society on a wrong footing. And the epistle goes even further. It ups the ante because... If the man gets this wrong and fails to conduct himself properly towards his wife, your prayers will be blocked. Do you remember the proud Pharisee in the parable of Jesus in St. Luke's Gospel who went into the temple and said, Lord, I thank you so much that I am so wonderful and so holy and so prayerful and keep the law absolutely perfect. I'm not like this person here, this sinner, this person who's just so ridiculous. And there's this extraordinary little line in it which says... He prayed to himself. 
Because what's going on there, as in this passage here, is that when we place ourselves at the centre and see ourselves as full of importance, at that point we block ourselves off from God. Because I have placed myself between my soul and the Lord who saves me. Selfishness is what gets the relationship wrong. Not living in a well-ordered way with regard to women will lead to the blocking of the man's prayer, to being cut off from God. So then it narrows down to what it means for me. The structure has been to zoom in. Uh, We've started with society as a whole, politics and the state, the workplace, the household, and now the individuals. Be Verse 8, like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Such a person who is like that has grown, has grown mightily through ordering relationships properly by focusing every and each of those relationships controversially, shockingly, worryingly, uncomfortably on God first. Not trying to get those human relationships right and then going to God, but focusing on God first that we may grow in God and grow in relationship. And that as a result of that, we effect the evangelization which alone leads to true change in society. So we change society not by seeking status, but by looking only to Christ. We change politics and the state not by campaigning, but by good relationships, which lead then to people coming to Christ and changing the world. We change the workplace not by a focus on workers' rights, mine or even another's, but by modelling Christ whose suffering changed the world. We change our households with a radical equality indifference of men and women, which can be lived out even when the relationships are unequal in either direction. And so it is that we grow, living in submission to God, which allows us then to make really significant and important changes to be genuinely important, to thrive and flourish as individuals ourselves precisely because of our looking out to others and receiving back from them things which enable us to grow into greater and better people, more rounded individuals. And so it is that we are taught in the verse that sums the whole thing up from the beginning to live such good lives among the pagans that they they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Amen.